I've either got to increase my client number per vet or I've got to increase my level of service promotion. And this is where I make my decision. I say to myself, okay, I've got to be a boutique practice or I've got to be a high throughput practice. Make that decision and stick to it. All right, coming at you with another show. Welcome to the Veterinary Business Success Show with me, Dr. Dave Nichol. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects that can be used to better manage your veterinary practice. On today's show, I'm joined by data devotee and self-identified software nerd, Paolo Lencioni. Paolo's a bit of a unicorn, part veterinarian, former practice owner, part accountant, and more recently, software developer. He built the Neo PIM system, which was acquired by IDEX. He's also one of the directors of ValueVet, Australia's leading valuation service for vet businesses. But it's his latest software venture, Profit Diagnostics, which forms the backdrop to this conversation. Profit Diagnostics is a service that provides member practices with weekly automated data visualizations, offering real-time feedback and benchmarking into team performance and vet clinics. So join me in this conversation as we uncover the secret power of dashboards, data, and how you can use them to transform your practice. So I'm delighted to be joined by today's guest by a very, very talented individual. If you've not heard of Paolo before, then you should look him up because Paolo and his wife, Anne, I have to say, are remarkably adept, multi-talented. Do you know what? You're Renaissance experts. You're a complete conundrum wrapped in together because you've got a lot of width to your games your collective games but you're also you've got a very deep game in the places you've gone so paulo is a veterinarian and an accountant and at the last time accounting was a veterinarian mba holder accountant and there's probably about six other things in there paulo on top of that you are also a software designer and general geek nerd Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pilot, I say that with immense affection and from one to the other, like you've got that sort of techie nerdy bit beyond anything that I've got. So I hope you don't take offense to that. It's certainly said with love and affection. Welcome to the show, sir. Thanks, Dave. And it's always great to have you back. Uh, you know, I've known you for a very long time. So you've kind of, you've actually grown like with us on the whole experience. I still remember sitting with you at a coffee shop uh, in Australia one time when uh, you sat with me and Anne, and uh, we were discussing becoming your tax accountants <laughs> when we uh, when we just opened up our accounting firm, and uh, and that goes back quite a while now. It does, but yeah, there's been a lot of things happening there, and and like in spite of what you said, in terms of like, yes, we do software, we do accounting, we do business advisory. On top of that, we're also now both certified business valuers, and we do a lot of business valuations and run a, a business valuation component to our business. But all of that stuff we do in the veterinary industry. We've taken all these other things uh, from when we were vets uh, and owned our own veterinary practice ages ago in the UK and done all this extra work and studies and worked outside of the veterinary industry and eventually come back to a profession we love. And uh, like, I don't know, people think we're crazy, but it's a profession we love to work with and bring all these skills into the veterinary profession and actually turn away anyone who wants to use our services who isn't a veterinary surgeon. So it's uh, our, our services are niched entirely to the veterinary industry, and that's how I love it. There's no question about it. You are crazy, but we're all crazy in veterinary medicine. <laughs> as long as you're not stupid, that's the important thing, right? Do you know where I first learned about your work? Have I ever told you this? No, I don't think you have. So poignant throwback to so John Sheridan. I heard him talking on his maybe. So he did the veterinary business video show. And I was looking at practice management softwares for, I just moved to Australia and I was looking at software upgrades. And that's when I first called you from the clinic I was working for there. But it wasn't until I opened or took over my own hospital, then I called you and then we, we actually, you know, started using Be Free properly and, and, and set up the accounting thing. So it was John Sheridan. Okay, so it was John, John Sheridan that put us together. That's nice, actually. It's nice to know because we both had a great friendship with John. Uh, it's a fantastic guy. So, and a great, a loss, great loss of it. Oh, and so. it was, and it was, you know, it's, it's not far off a year since he passed. And yeah, what an epic guy. So, so that's nice that, that actually his legacy is huge. And our relationship is part of that legacy for which I'm incredibly grateful. So, <laughs> Paolo, I want to talk today about data and specifically data and veterinary clinics because we are in an age where we're awash with data we're told data is so important and in a previous episode I've heard from one of my other good friends Mel who's also a, a bit of a data nerd 
So I wanted to get a bit more veterinary spin on this and start with a, a nice easy question. Why is data collection so important? Basically, I can explain it in terms of how we work with veterinary practices. When we started off our advisory component to our accounting firm, we wanted to know stuff about veterinary practices. So for example, like if a veterinary practice does like, it's got two vets and they do a thousand vet consultations a year. So that's 500 consultations per vet in a year. I need to know whether that's good or bad. I need to know whether they can do better, whether doing better is feasible and humanly possible. And without knowing what the average veterinary practice does, I actually don't know whether that 500 consultations per vet is any good. So I can't really say to them, I think you need to improve your marketing, improve your reception desk, your telephone answering so that you can drive primary consultations in your veterinary practice. So that's kind of a very simple example of why data is so important. So we started this gig um, in the veterinary space and in the old days, we used to send out a questionnaire and to all the veterinary practices and say to them, uh, we used to do a benchmarking report for them every year. They used to fill in this questionnaire and they used to tell us how many consultations they did. And then we'd aggregate the data in a, in a spreadsheet and then we'd work out the average. Sure I was always late. Yeah, and yes, yours was always late, Dave. <laughs> and then we'd get the average and then we'd say to you, okay, well, actually, you know, the average vet, say, like for argument's sake, actually 500 is not too far from the, the normal number, but say the average vet does 550 to 600 consults, your shortfall of consultations is 10 to 20%. So you can probably generate a certain amount of extra revenue or profit in your practice by improving your consultation volume by 10%, which will put you in line with average. So it shouldn't be too hard to do to aim for the average benchmark. Isn't that hard to do? So we can, um, we can drive profitability. The problem we had with this is then the questionnaire wasn't good enough because people wouldn't send the right information back and you get this rubbish in, rubbish out situation. So for example, and the consultation is actually a really good example. I'd ask a veterinary practice how many consultations you do. And a lot of veterinary practices will charge a consultation fee when they do a vaccination, just because the way they like the invoice to look, they'll have a like a, a special visit consultation for the vaccination and other, other practices won't. They'll just have a straight up uh, vaccination fee. So they start to send you like, and with that mistake, just with the vaccinations, for example, that actually doubles the number of consults. So you get a rubbish in, rubbish out situation. You can't really tell where that practice is going. So we needed a way to cleanse the data and make it a little bit, uh, a little bit better and smarter. So we then, that's when we went on to create our data tools that actually collected the data, cleanse it, and actually run a whole lot of sanity checks and BI um, sort of background things to actually fix things like that example I told you about duplication of vaccinations and primary consultations. Because when we benchmark, we like to count vaccinations as a separate client-facing event compared to a primary consult. Because the workflow is different. The driver of vaccinations is reminders. The drivers of primary consultation is going to be like your reception desk, your marketing, all that sort of stuff. So that's just the way we like to benchmark. So that's kind of a, an example of why data is important. And if you bring that across in like we do across absolutely everything. So take that consultation now and say, let's put it across absolutely everything a vet does. The number of cytology samples, the number of radiographs, the number of dental radiographs, the number of blood tests, the number of pre-J blood tests, the number of IV fluids, the number of hospitalization fees all that sort of stuff. Once you can break down a practice into all those items and every practice has got a weak spot uh, or numerous weak spots, you can immediately identify for customers where their leaky buckets are in their business and give them feasible, tangible targets to to get to. You can't do that without data. Right. So there's an element of that that is the collection of the individual's data, and but then there's a bigger element of giving that data meaning. And so some of how you're giving that data meaning then is through benchmarking. Let's start with, you've rattled through some stuff that sounded pretty important there. You and I both know practice owners, practice managers, and certainly one of the things that I, I have been asked about a lot more recently is dashboards. We'd like dashboards. Let's start with, what is a dashboard and on what data, so that a clinic doesn't get overwhelmed? What are the absolutely fundamental numbers that a clinic can, that should and also can access without too much trouble? So first question, what is a dashboard? A dashboard is an accumulation of multiple reports on a single screen in an easy to read format. So for example, you might want to know how many active clients you've got in your practice and what your average client spend is. In your traditional software, like your traditional practice management software, you might have those things buried somewhere in the back end of it. So you'd generate a report for your number of active clients, and then you'd go and find another report that showed your average client spend. So uh, ideally, it would be nice because often you're looking at those two things together. You say, well, wouldn't it be really nice if I had them on the screen? 
And when they were on the screen, they weren't just like a list of clients or, or just a, like a, a number. They had actually be shown in a chart so that I don't actually see what my active clients were today, but I see a trend over the last 12 months so that I can see my uh, clients, whether my clients were growing or shrinking. So when, again, looking at the active clients reports in dashboard format, if you were actually going to look at a 12-month trend in your practice management software, you'd then have to run 12 reports. And the same happens then with your client spend. I want to see my client spend trending over 12 months. So I'd have to run 12 reports, which means 24 reports, and then write them all down and then make them look pretty for the manager. So a dashboard puts all that into one screen. So you just run, look at one screen and have all the information in front of you across, like with that instance, would actually be 24 different reports. So that answers okay. the dashboard question, right? So what was the second, oh, the important, uh, the important, this is where I'd start getting crazy, right? I can see Dave yeah. starting to giggle your eyes. Paulo started to get his crazy face on. <laughs> <laughs> the problem, Paulo, is where if you take it somewhere as a good interviewer, I should remember where the hell we started, but I'm not claiming to be a good interviewer. So I do remember where we started in this instance, but there is a risk. <laughs> we go zinging off into crazy time. Which... <laughs> so, so do you need the do you need the second question again? I've got it. I've remembered. <laughs> All right, good man. <laughs> you were saying what were the important things that a practice should should measure and easy. So it's important. It's that combo of important and and easy, because it's not always easy. One often excludes the other, right? So let's go with important, because <laughs> <laughs> okay. sometimes having the easy stuff and not the important stuff is not great. But we'll go for the important stuff. So we've actually got a fairly consistent thing, and we've, I've done a few presentations on this on what I think are the probably the five or six most important KPIs in a veterinary business. I actually didn't sit down and think what are going to be the five most important KPIs for a veterinary business. Um, when we were de- designing our da- dashboarding data software, we came up with a dashboard called the Business Health Check. And on this dashboard would be a snapshot. Um, if I was consulting for the first time with a veterinary practice, a brand new client, and I was actually meeting the business owners for the first time, I could look at this dashboard and within two minutes actually know if this practice had any serious problems. And with that, I thought, okay, well, these must be the most important KPIs for veterinary practice because at a snapshot and very, very quickly in two or three minutes, if I can see it, the practice manager can see it, that this practice has got problems. And these are veterinary 101 things. In other words, uh, from my advisory perspective, if a practice has got any problems with their business health check, I would probably look at addressing those problems before we took up any other more complicated or difficult strategies. My number one KPI is number of active clients. Okay, because effectively that is the goodwill of your business and, uh, you know, a business without clients is worth nothing. You got a question there, Dave? You look like you wanted to. Yeah, I was going to say, do you want to hit us with a a working definition of active clients? There's going to be all sorts of ranges and levels of experience. So for some that they'll know that, but others might wonder exactly what that is and how it's typically measured. So actually, funnily enough, um, how it's typically measured, and actually most people probably won't know because they were actually, when we, at the outset, when we took this on, we didn't feel there was any consistent measurement of a number of active clients. And when we were sending out manual questionnaires to people, it was quite clear that people didn't know this, which, which is what we actually class as probably the most important KPI. So by our definition, and I'm not saying our definition is the only correct one, but by our definition, so that we can benchmark accurately, an active client for us is a client who has been invoiced a positive dollar value in the last 12 months. And I'm going to say something crazy. You can edit this out, Dave, because some religious people might take offense to this, but we have a a saying at Profit Diagnostics now that I started. And the the saying is the invoice is God. Because it's the only legal document that allows for financial um, auditing and people have to have it right for tax purposes, it is in fact, in my opinion, the only element in a practice management system when you're data mining that actually gives consistent results across all the practice management systems. So when we can build a KPI based on invoiced, on something invoiced, we know that that KPI is going to be consistent across, you know, probably the 15 or 20 different practice management systems we currently work with now. So uh, so active client, any client who has been invoiced a positive dollar value in the last 12 months. And by definition, that, and from a KPI perspective, this is actually very similar in the UK, is for the average practice, your average uh, number of active clients per full-time bed equivalent are around six, between 640 and 660. And that seems to have dropped a lot over recent years. You know, when you look at some of the data I saw from America back pre-Bear Brackey study in 2011, they were plotting, it used to be 1,200, and now it was trending down towards 800 in the US. I think it was being measured wrong. 
because when yeah, we were doing it, when we were doing it manually via our checklists, we used to be in the high 800s or 900s. But the practice management systems were using not invoice, they were using clinical notes or whether mm. the record was modified. So in other words, if you went in and you actually wrote in the notes, this client's no longer using us, this client's no, and like just de- you went on an exercise of deactivating like 100 clients, because the yeah. database record was touched, those clients were reactivated in the reports. So actually, I don't think it actually dropped. I actually think it was being measured incorrectly. Um, actually, I'm pretty certain of that, because going back to that, I'm pretty sure that was the case. That's interesting and, and cheering to hear, because I've often thought, something weird with that number because I don't think I ever had a practice that had that many active clients when I looked at it and yeah, I still had, you know, profitable practices. Here's a sidebar to that question. A trend I've noticed in, in my own data is it doesn't make sense if, when I look at annual clients, but when I look at my monthly active clients, they're huge and they're enough to support. I think that the business that I currently operate, it works because it has a lot of clients visiting each month. The active client numbers per month are very high. The active client numbers per year are really not terribly exciting at all. And indeed, possibly quite worrying when I look at those. But yet the business works. And I think that there's a much higher recall of that smaller number of people much more frequently. Is there anything you can speak to there? I mean, there are different models that work in the, in the businesses out there. Yeah, okay, I can speak a lot on that. <laughs> so first of all, actually, interestingly, in the UK, um, UK practices run with a slightly higher number of active clients for full-time medical than Australian practices. You might remember Australian practices are quite fond of the half-hour-plus consult, yep. so much longer consulting uh, time. So UK practices can service, like where an Australian practice is generally around 640 to 660 active clients, and a UK practice will often be in the low 700s. So, but it's not a huge deviation. Now, when you, then you said something interesting about active clients per month. Of course, people will intuitively think, okay, well, if I just measure any client I've invoiced a positive dollar value in one month and multiply it by 12, that'll be my active clients for the year. Of course, it won't be because that same client is going to, on average, visit your practice 3.8 times in the year. So you're actually going to way over count if you do that. So your active clients per month is actually um, is a good indicator of how many people are visiting your practice. And if the same number of clients are coming back again and again and again and again, your active clients per month will indeed be very high in spite of the fact that you might not have a lot of active clients per full-time bet per year. And with regards to business models, we've actually broken it down into what, well, like, again, we just make up words for these things, like you can call it whatever you want. But I just we actually call, like we, we have what we call a high throughput practice which is a practice that runs on a high number of active clients, but delivers a lower quality of service. And then we have what we call boutique practices that have a very low number of active clients before time, yet they deliver a very high quality of service to those clients and those clients visit those practices a whole lot more. And the range we see within this is, um, you know, your high throughput practice generally runs in, and we have these in Australia too, um, 800 plus active clients per full-time vet. And crazily enough, your boutique practice can actually run at a very high net profit margin in the low 400s. So literally Mm. half the number of clients per vet. People ask, well, we can do both. You absolutely cannot do both. Okay, when you look at the KPIs of these practices, your high throughput practice will be doing a low volume of dentistry, a low volume of blood testing, and all these additional wellness services that a vet can offer will be much lower. Whereas a boutique practice will probably be doing four to five times the volume per client of those particular services. The reason why the boutique practice can do that is because the vets have got more time to deal with each client. Uh, Whereas in a high throughput practice, if you tried to increase the number of those services to that level, you physically would not have the manpower to do it. So there is absolutely no way you can be both because people say, well, I'll do this for my high value clients and this for my low value clients. You can't be both. Uh, You simply cannot be both. One is exclusive to the other. Both models are profitable. We have um, high net profit margin practices in both models. I can't vouch to say that one is better than the other. I think it's a cultural thing and what the clinician prefers. Let's pull it away from the hard data from the practice management. Which one has the higher levels of burnout, presumably measured in higher staff turnover and retention? Definitely the high high throughput practice. Does that describe most practices around? Because my intuition, all of my instincts are telling me that the reason we keep talking about people are burning out and we need to make people more resilient. My sense is that 
that's unlikely to happen anytime soon. Uh, and although we can help people, it's actually the way that we set our businesses up. And we've traditionally, Venture practices have set up to be all things to all people. And so they're trying to do high volume and high touch. And it's just impossible. So you either go high volume, low touch, make your systems a certain way, present it a certain way. So you manage that client's expectations. So then they're not grumpy with you because they get what they expect. Or you go low volume, high touch, and you are extremely well set up to be this very shishi, great experience that you know looks good on Instagram. Uh, you know, the other one doesn't look good on Instagram, <laughs> but it's EasyJet versus, uh, not British Airways or Qantas, it's EasyJet versus a private jet. And we've tried to be what British Airways are doing, which is try to be the middle ground and, and be a bit too expensive and a bit too crap on customer service. So the brand gets flogged. And when the brand gets flogged, everybody feels bad in it. Like it feels like I just described what veterinary medicine is, which is we're all trying to be British Airways in the middle. And nobody's really gone, right, I'm just going to go with one end. Or I mean, that's not nobody. There are some great examples. I can think of a couple in Australia, a couple here that are doing an incredible boutique sort of service but do you have data that would support that insight have you seen anything to support that support that there's people going on the on the periphery of it or well or that everyone's in the middle (laughs) yeah well i I think there's plenty of evidence that people are all in the middle but what i'm interested in is where is there less pain that's measured in the sense of staff turnover okay within that system that we can actually what wouldn't be great to be able to say look the reason that there is such an epidemic of burnout, people are breaking and we're seeing like the BVA have a survey saying there's 37% of vets want to leave the industry and, and people are hating on it. And arguably there's a higher level of suicide is that we're trying to satisfy everybody. We're putting ourselves in an impossible situation where we just cannot win without an insane level of skill in clinical communications and mental resilience. A few people have that sweet spot so we're, we're actually setting everybody up to fail so i'm interested in is there data to say that at, at the periphery of this is there any evidence that would support the suggestion or the the belief that we we actually should push our businesses into those more peripheral locations because when you do the pressure comes off you've got more time to work with the clients that are willing to pay for your service or you've got a short amount of time but there's a price tag that suits because you're not trying to do everything and you're not you're not going to be the ultrasonographer, the diagnostician, the the dentist, because we just say this is a niche service. It's cheap, and here's what you get for that money. I can tell you what I don't have hard data on it. I can tell you what I I know by gut feel because we do a lot of hands-on advisory with a fair number of practices. If I was to go into the veterinary game again and own a veterinary practice, I would certainly aim my veterinary practice on the boutique end. I think doing your job to the absolute best of your ability. And servicing clients to like that gold standard is very, very rewarding. And certainly from a profitability perspective, I get the feeling that the tendency for our higher net profit margin practices tends to be on the boutique end. It seems to be a good model. Um, I think also from the, if you're running a private practice, it's definitely a niche where the corporates won't be able to compete. Because um, again, if you're an empire builder and you want to have 20 practices, it's going to be exponentially difficult to run it at that level. McDonald's does not run as a you know a Michelin star type restaurant. They never will be able to, no matter how much money they poured into it. So if you're going to be a, an operator that wants to be a private practice, you can probably run maybe two, maybe three practices to that level, but there will be a limit to the scale of your operations. But it does make it very resilient because that type of client will never go to a corporate practice. They just cannot. Like It's like saying you know, to someone who likes you know, all the best cuisine in the world to tell them to go eat at the McDonald's. They just won't do it. They'd rather die. That's my feeling on the situation. The other side of the coin is, have I seen a higher turnover in one or the other? The reality from, again, this is just, I don't have data on this, but from what I can see in terms of staff churn in practices, I don't believe there is a higher staff churn in one model versus the other. And I'll explain to you why I think this is the case. Although on the surface of burnout, a lot of people say that, you know, it would be easier to work in a boutique practice, you have more touch points with the clients, you're not run off your feet, etc. One of the big issues we have in the profession is there and one of the big stresses in fact in the profession is the inability of a lot of clinicians to promote their services 
They have a lot of price conflict, a lot of cost conflict. They're very uncomfortable charging high fees to customers. And they're very, very soft with their recommendations. And not like, you know, Fluffy's teeth are really bad. If we don't treat Fluffy's teeth now and do this grade two dental now, next year it'll be a grade four dental and it's going to cost you more. Let's just do it now and let's book you in now. They're very much more of the, you know, oh, Fluffy's teeth are bad. Um, you know, maybe you should come in in the next six months and we'll clean up Fluffy's teeth. So the making of recommendations and then being appraised on being bad at that. Because if you go and work in a boutique practice where, you know, there's two other veterinarians working at that level, and you go in there and suddenly you can't get clients to say yes to your recommendations and you can't, you know, you don't have the confidence to get that stuff done, then that job actually becomes very stressful because you are the underperforming the practice and your boss isn't happy with you and you feel you're uncomfortable with the cost because it costs twice as much as the previous place you worked. And it's just, it's stressful. So there's the weakness of a boutique model practice is, is there is an issue, a different kind of stressor that happens. Whereas in a high throughput practice, that clinician, like we have clinicians, we call them, like we give everything names, right? So we've identified certain clinicians, we call them workhorses. And we have certain clinicians that are on the nth scale of efficiency, but not on the nth scale of being able to communicate with clients. They are exceptional surgeons. They are exceptionally good at diagnosing stuff. Their powers of palpation are beyond that of anyone else, right? They can actually palpate stuff and they actually can get away without doing an ultrasound. They actually fit in perfectly in a high throughput practice and they love their job because they get a high, what they say is they love having a high caseload and diagnosing and treating a lot of patients. And you can see both of those clinics have a noble cause. One gets to treat a lot of sick animals. The other one gets to treat fewer sick animals, but to an exceptional level of care. There's nothing wrong with being one or the other. I think it's a preference. And so hence the stressor, where is the stressor? I think it's selecting the right person for the right job. And having the right culture in the business and not selling, not selling a job. If you're a high throughput practice, don't sell the job as a, like, we are the best practice and we have all the best equipment in the world. Because you might have it, you're not going to use it. <laughs> you see, so it's, it's getting the right people right. on the right bus. Yeah. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar, or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. You know what? I love what you've just said there. And I'm going to offer an extra layer to the the wonderful gateau that you've just created. And that is, I, I think that we're doing a very poor job of marketing in both those situations as well, because we've we've got a very scarcity mindset that we've just got to get clients in. And I think the boutique practices have the cheap clients without meaning to because they're not boutique enough in some way. They're not aggressive or guarding enough of that. And the high throughput client practices have the boutique clients who expect much more than is possible in a system like that. I think you're right. We have to be much more clear of what we are. Unapologetic about that. Once you are something, go out there and say what it is. But do that for your staff as well as your clients. And when we get that mix right, I think veterinary medicine is in good shape. I think we're just, it's just a hot mess right now because we don't have that specificity in either department. Like actually all three, we don't know who we are. So we don't know who we've got to hire. We don't know who we should be serving. We've got a rough idea, but rough idea is not enough. And now we've been overrun with clients and COVID. I want to pull back because we're, we're diving off down a rabbit hole. Yeah, we've got we, to do. The first, we do the first KPI. <laughs> We've so done we, one. We, another, we one. Let's hit the other four. 
Okay, so so I know my active clients now. So we've defined what active clients are. Now we've discussed some stuff as to why it's important, right? The whole culture and how throughput of your business works. So the next thing I need to know, so so much hinges on knowing your active clients accurately. And the scary thing is most practice management systems don't report on it correctly. This was our problem. Because once I know what my number of active clients are, I know what my throughput of my business is before time very equivalent, and I know what kind of business I am. Now, I, once I know my active clients, I, I can also work out what my average client spend per year. So in other words, if I've got a thousand active clients and a hundred thousand dollars of revenue or a million dollars of revenue, I just divide one by the other and I know what my average client spend is, right? And then I, again, I can start to see what practice I am. So if I talk about the range of what we see here, the national average in Australia of average client spend is roughly in the 720 to 740 Australian dollars a year. Our worst performing practices are in the $400 per year. Now, if you put that across a 1,000 clients, you know, you're looking at a shortfall of $300 per client, you know, times a 1,000. So you're looking at $300,000 shortfall in revenue based on their, their certain level of service promotion. And the upper end of that, and actually we have a practice in New Zealand doing this, $2,300 per client. Now, this practice runs on under 400 active clients for full-time bed equipment, but they can afford to because their client spend is four times more than other practices, three to four times more than other practices. So you can see, as soon as I see a big range in any KPI, I get very excited because it means like this, like, you know, you can, there's things you can do. Is that converted to Australian dollars or is that New Zealand dollars? Well, New Zealand dollars and Australian dollars at the time of us doing it were actually almost at parity and they tend to always move at parity. So they're always within 10% of each other. So the reality is like when we look at our KPIs across Australia and New Zealand, it's no problem. Interestingly enough, if you just take the Australian dollar value and convert it to British pounds, the KPIs actually align up fairly well too. So the pet owners fit a bell-shaped curve like globally. <laughs> it's quite easy like to, to extrapolate within a, a certain limit of reasonableness that um, a similar thing happens in the UK. Um, we've seen some UK data. We know at the time when we did look at the data, it was true that we could pretty much just convert from one currency to another. Now with COVID, who knows what the currency fluctuations might be a bit different, but, but it, is, it is fairly portable. But the range will be the yeah. same in the UK. I mean, you'll get that similar range of, you know, someone who's doing a, like one quarter and spend per year per client to, uh, to another practice. So those will be your extremes in the UK, undoubtedly. Yeah, we spread over a bell-shaped curve, but on that sense, we also will spread over a, a very exponential yeah, curve. Yeah. Somewhere in this planet there will be a veterinarian doing a hundred thousand <laughs> somewhere and average and client, spend. Yeah, client spend it'll be and a far, yeah. it'll be a farm practice but yeah. there, there will be a vet doing it and now no like so for example now if i know i've only got 500 clients for full-time vet equivalent but my client spend is only sort of 500 australian dollars a year i know i've got a problem i know that i've got a boutique volume of clients but i'm only servicing them as a high throughput practice so at this point i've yeah. got to make a choice i've either got to increase my client number per vet or I've got to increase my level of service promotion. And this is where I make my decision. I say to myself, okay, I've got to be a boutique practice or I've got to be a high throughput practice. Make that decision and stick to it. Yeah. So so that's it. So active clients. So number two is annual spend per client, uh, which is really, really important. And then coming to number three, three of my most important KPIs are what we call measuring the trends of um, your what we call client-facing events. Other people might call them visits, but we call them client-facing events. And those, broadly speaking, are your volume of primary consultations, repeat consultations, and vaccinations. So any event that results in a client being with his pet in the consult room with the vet, and that vet has then the opportunity to promote some kind of wellness service or diagnose something wrong with that pet, we tag as a client-facing event. And those are the three big ones. Because short of those, and if there's a problem with either of those primary consultations, vaccinations, or repeat consultations, then you're not going to diagnose stuff and you're not going to get any flow on work from treating stuff. So you might have a practice. So again, why it's important. I might have a, a practice that's got 800 clients per full-time vet equipment. And I know that roughly speaking in most veterinary practices, if I've got 800 clients, my number of primary consultations is 90% of that. So multiply the 800 by 0.9, so it'd be roughly 720 consultations. That practice should have 720 consultations. And if it's only got 500 consultations in spite of having its, you know, eight or 900 active clients, I know there's a problem with primary consultations and the drivers of primary consultations are 
How's my telephone being answered? Have I got availability of appointments or are we deferring appointments? What's my external marketing look like? What's the external presence of my practice look like? You know, am I reachable, visible on Facebook, visible on search engines, things like that. That's what drives your primary yeah. consultations. Is there a global pandemic happening? Is, is there a global pandemic? Trashed our whole Yeah. So system. Um, so there again, I can immediately, like, instantaneously make a, a quick, a quick, like, rule of thumb and say, okay, this practice's private consultations are too low, and the same applies for repeat consultations. We know repeat consultations are about at 0.2 or get 20% of your active client number, and if it's high or low, I can say, okay, there's a problem with repeat consultations. And the reason why we measure them differently is the drivers of repeat consultations are significantly different to primary consultations because the driver of your repeat consultation is actually the veterinarian. And when he does that consultation, does he actually book a revisit for that skin case or for that ear case that they've seen? So different low repeat consultations, I know exactly what part of the team and what process or workflow in the practice to address if I have low repeat consultations. And then vaccinations, of course, uh, the third client-facing event, if I see those very low. And incidentally, uh, in most practices, your volume of vaccinations pretty much equal to your volume of primary consultations. So that will do one primary consultation to one vaccination. If I see a big deviation there, I know that, or a big drop there, or it's too low, I know there's a problem with that um, business's vaccination policies or with their vaccination reminders. A completely different process in the business that can be fixed and identified uh, as the problem to that particular cause. That's interesting. I didn't, I didn't expect you to say that. I'm curious, just, you know, it, what drives the one-to-one relationship there? You know, it seems very arbitrary. It is arbitrary. It's, it totally, it's, totally, it's totally arbitrary. It just happens to be that way. But once you've looked at like literally thousands of practices numbers, yeah. you know, you see the patterns. And that's why I call they heuristics. They're rules of thumb. They mean nothing uh, other than like it gives you a quick way of assessing something. So, like, I see primary consultations, I see vaccinations. If I see my vaccinations are only half of what my primary consultations are, I can almost guarantee you that that practice is only sending out one vaccination reminder, probably by post or something like that. And it doesn't take a lot to identify the issue and actually make them ethically, make them an extra, you know, $100,000, $200,000 in revenue because um, they've just mismanaged the reminder system. And in fact, you're not gouging your clients. You're actually practicing bad medicine because there's pets missing on their vaccinations. Yeah. So, you know, it's an ethical... You're like, arguably it's an ethical being unethical. Arguably, you're fixing a problem for the practice and for the patients. So, um, so, yeah. so yeah. yeah. That was my, my next one. So, basically, what we call client-facing events. I think, I don't know now, I've lost count. <laughs> there no, that's number I've lost three. Count, and I don't have my dashboard in front of me. I don't have my dashboard in front of me, so I'm starting to wonder what the next one is. Okay, number four is, is wages. So, wages as a... <laughs> Dave's laughing because he knows I'm... Yeah, I know. Wages is the other one. I'm guessing what number five is already. You're guessing what number five is. You might not get it. Anyway, we look at wages as a percentage of turnover. So, and currently, like, it's might, it's different in the UK. We have superannuation here. So we actually look at, at wages plus the amount of money the employer has to put in the employee's pension because it's obligatory over here. So wages and pension as a percentage of turnover and in the average Australian veterinary practice that's roughly 42% of turnover so if your turnover or your revenue is a million dollars then you'll have $420,000 in wages and pension money going out the interesting thing there is that there's a like our best performers run at 27% if we call that a best performer their wages are 27% of turnover the question I ask myself there is that actually sustainable from a stress point of view because this is where I start to see the stressor impact is that one vet with seven nurses? No, no, no. We see some with multiple vet practices. The reality of that is that's where you see burnout. You know, when a practice is trying to run really low on wages, I yeah. don't believe that's uh, sustainable. The, only, the lowest sustainable percent we see where a practice maintains that for like three years or more is at 33 to 34%. Mm. So I would never aspire to be a practice that's got my wages at 27% of turnover. Everyone's just going to burn out. You keep it at sort of 33% uh, at best, uh, comfortably at 35 36%. And on the other side of the coin, if you go over 45 46%, you know you're not going to be very profitable because um, all the profits are being soaked up by wages. And there's likely to be an efficiency-based problem in that particular in, in that particular business. So, uh, and, and certainly a lot of things. Like it's a very indirect measure, right? Because it could be um, like your wages could, your knee-jerk reaction is my wages are very high. Like I've got 50% wages. Um, my wages are too high. I need to get rid of people. It's actually not always the case. The question you ask yourself is, are my existing people promoting enough services to my clients? And when they do this, 
are they actually billing for it appropriately? Because that's usually the problem. It's not that you don't have a client, it's that you're not promoting the services or missed billing is a big problem in practices too. You have people actually doing the work and actually forgetting to, to charge it up. So you actually don't have to get rid of anyone often. It's often a service promotion issue. That's wages as a percentage of, of, of turnover. The last one, I don't think you, I don't know if you would have got it or not. Actually, I, I actually really like to measure average invoice value, average transaction fee, because that's my marker in a veterinary practice for misbilling. And um, I know misbilling is an, is an epidemic in veterinary practices. So we measure average invoice value. And um, the reason why I like it is it's a bit of an inconsistent KPI because it does get like this. Your average invoice value basically is, it can be skewed by the practice management software you use. Because for example, if I, um, if I admit a patient, some hospitals will actually, if it's in for seven days, they'll raise one invoice for seven days. Whereas another hospital will say, well, we'll actually do seven invoices, one for each day. So we have like interim billing. And that really changes your average invoice value. But the reason why I like it is it's quick. And the reason why we have it on the business health check is when a practice onboards one or two veterinary surgeons, you will be amazed how that KPI drops. Um, start a new veterinary surgeon today. And by next month, you can notice a significant drop throughout the whole practice of average invoice value. And that's the cost of onboarding. Even if it's a really, really good practitioner, their first two to three months in the practice, particularly with billing, because all vets can diagnose and treat. There's no problem there. But change practice management system, change business culture, change billing templates and things like that. They cannot bill and it takes them time to learn and you actually lose heaps and heaps of money. So we like to monitor it and as soon as it drops, if there's a new clinician introduced, um, they just train them on the practice, not clinical work. It's just, you know, this is how you invoice on this practice management system and uh, try and fix that quicker rather than lose money. So that's why we like to measure that one. That's why it's a quick, quick check on the business health. So those are my, my important ones. So the ones I would checkers and business 101 there's almost a case to be made there for having a, a billing czar within the clinic who's not you know who's a stable person you know nurse manager somebody like that who just you bring what you did they create the bill but you've, you've got to get the, the estimate right from the start with that yeah and i mean, I mean Lots you, of thoughts on you might do this in your practice but i mean i i did a lot of locuming when i first came to australia and not once when you walk in the practice does anyone give you a user manual how this practice works and um, I don't think ever, ever when I've worked at a veterinary practice has there been an induction. Or they might have said, here's the anesthetic machine, here's the operating theater, here's where all your medical kit is. But no one's ever said to me, this is how a practice management system works and this is how you bill. And I would actually argue when you onboard a new vet, very few practices actually have a formal training session with their new clinician as to how they bill and what their policies are. Because I remember sitting there as a locum in some practices thinking, geez, I'd really love to use, you know, SR12, the injectable heartworm prevention here because it's better for the practice. But what's their policy here with SR12? Because some practices hate it and some practices love it. And no one's told yeah. me. So what recommendation do I make to the client? And I also remember booking, working at, at a practice as a locum and booking in a bunch of dentals and I'd get out the back and the nurses would say to me, geez, please don't book in all these dentals. We don't know how to do them or we don't want to do them. Like the boss hates them. <laughs> yeah, when you go, they're going to have to pick up the bit. So, you know, you've got to get the culture right. And so, you know, there has to be a manual how this practice works. And I don't think there's a lot enough done in that space, which is why we often see when we track individual vet um, performance, when a new employee is recruited, particularly a vet, their billing is always very shaky for up to three months, in spite of them being a really, really good clinician. And long term, after 12 months being at the practice, they might be a rock star, but their first three months are shaky. Yeah, I certainly concur with that and and even with onboarding to an extent it's a lot of information you're throwing at somebody you know we have a, a very detailed onboarding program and it covers that but you cannot expect you know learning looks like 10 percent learning 70 percent doing 20 percent reflecting feeding back and improving and most of the time we don't even do the 10 we give them the opportunity to do the 70 and then we because we're a bit conflict averse don't have the 20 <laughs> until we blow up or we're having a weeping conversation with our accountant <laughs> for tax over 10 minutes and how everything's so bad for two hours. Yeah. And there it goes. Pilot, you've been really generous and it's always brilliant to tap into your monumental brain. The question I think will be on a lot of people's lips is, geez, that sounds like a lot of work. You know, practice managers, you know, the most common question I get within the leaders community is where do I find time to do all of this stuff? Because it's because practice managers are a bit overrun. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on and talk to you is because you have created a tool that kind of takes the heavy lifting out of this. So why don't you tell us a little bit about 
profit diagnostics. Okay, I'll tell you. No advertorial here, right? Because I don't know we're going to we're going to even mention it. So that's no. Fine. I know, and I know. Actually, wasn't wasn't my intent. And but I think it's a you know I get asked about dashboards. There's a hard way, and there's an easy way. And the hard way is slogging through all your data. And there's an easy way. And frankly, my listeners are interested in working and running better businesses to get that and they need better data. So there's no money exchanged. This is a genuinely my curiosity. And I think the system you've developed is something that can bloody help people. So basically my take on this is like I'm in, in some ways you could say um, I do have an attention deficit to things. And quite honestly, if I see a human being doing a repetitive task more than five times, uh, it actually, it's, it's like someone pokes me in the eye. So when I look at a practice manager, and like we mentioned this at the beginning of the webinar, nothing means anything to me without a trend. That's the first, first thing I think about. So when I'm looking at a trend in active clients or a trend in average invoice value, these are all the KPIs I mentioned, or when I'm looking and monitoring consultations and vaccinations in a practice, I actually look at a 24-month trend, like what it was every month for 24. I have a little line chart that shows me this, right? Now, if I was going to do a 24-month trend on vaccinations, I would have to run 24 um, reports in my practice management system. So to build the dashboard, what I discussed here in the um, business health check with the trending, I actually worked it out one day. I think you'd have to run about 120 reports in your practice management system to get all the trending and all that information correctly. And this is why a dashboard exists because you click on something, a screen opens and there's all the information in front of you. If you are the kind of person who values your time and who values your staff time, then you will not be able to bear to watch someone pulling out 120 spreadsheets once a week or once a month so that they can produce you a management report. It's just not what humans were designed to do. Humans were designed to be creative and do other shit. Not that, right? Um, machines do that kind of work and they do it predictably and reliably. So the reality is when clients have said to us, we can get you all this information, but we don't necessarily want to use your software to do it. The reality is they may for the first meeting, they may for the second meeting, but once they come to the third meeting, and you're supposed to put the stuff at least once a month, by the time they get to the third month, they're not doing it anymore. And then they might train a junior nurse or someone in the practice who doesn't get bored doing this 120 times, and they might spend the time to train them to get all these reports out. But then that staff member leaves and they get a new one. And the reports you get are not the same ones because in your practice management system, there's a lot of similar but not the same reports. If your data becomes inconsistent, it becomes a schmozzle and you get rubbish in, rubbish out. So we got to the point now with that APL accounts, we charge significant fees to do advisors, but we actually said to people, if you don't have software um, that pulls out these KPIs consistently, we don't want you as a client. And I actually don't work with people because the decisions I help people make are dependent on the data I get. And um, like as a vet, you would I'm sure you would appreciate you don't want to do a dental scan polish by hand anymore. You've got the equipment that does it for you. So if you don't have Amen. the right equipment, you don't want to do the job. And I simply don't do the job. I will not work with rubbish data anymore because you're making $100,000 decisions based on something that might be incorrect. Um, I don't like the might be incorrect. So we use Profit Diagnostics. It's a great dashboarding tool. We know the data in it is clean and good. Um, we're heavily involved in the development. I actually project manage the software side of it and um, do all the quality control actually comes through our accounting firm. So when we say this dashboard shows this number of active clients, we know it's correct. Uh, when it shows your percentage wages is this, we know it's correct. And there's no manual input required. It sucks up all the data out of your accounting software and your practice management software, puts it all together in one place and does it all automatically. So you literally have to do nothing. So if you value your time, that's that's the way, like for me, that's, you know, the machine has to do everything. The human has to go ahead, run their business, be creative, do their marketing, motivate their team. That's the kind of stuff humans are meant to do. And the data extraction is not something you put people to. All right. So where do people go to check out this sort of magic software? And you, you work with several software systems now. Are they global? Are they you know, like you're based in Australia. Can you do this with software systems in the US? Yeah, so basically we connect to all the mainstream uh, practice management systems in Australia, a lot of them in the UK and uh, a bunch of them in America also. You go to www.profitdiagnostics.com and that's diagnostics with an X at the end, like an asterisk character. So profitdiagnostics.com and you can just uh, contact us through our website. 
there's a 30-day free trial, so you don't even have to pay anything. Like we hook you up and um, then one of our techs will actually have a meeting with you and show you all your KPIs. And actually, these ones I spoke to today, like the business health check, that's part of the standard dashboarding in there. So you can, like worst case scenario, you pay nothing and you get to see all that funky stuff in your business. If after 30 days you like it, then you just get billed month on month. So you pay monthly uh, as any software subscription as for as long as you want to use it. Hopefully forever from my perspective, but like, it doesn't, <laughs> you know, we don't force you to do that. The process is really, really simple. If you are on a practice management software or an accounting software that we don't support, all we need is hopefully you're using a proactive software provider. Um, and if your software provider has got an API or is willing to speak to us, we can normally hook up to another software system within about two weeks. Our development team's really, really good at that. So the main thing is that your software provider is willing to speak to us. And if they do, we can hook you up. It's not a problem. We don't charge you an extra for that. In fact, if you actually introduce us to a new software system that we haven't hooked up to before, uh, we give you six months free. <laughs> so we're pretty keen. Like we love connecting to new software systems. It's always exciting for us to do that. Like it's part of our R&D budget and we just love doing that. So um, so yeah, because I mean, across the world, there's literally hundreds of practice management software systems. It's a very fragmented market. But um, yeah. uh, currently, like we do most of the mainstream ones. So you just contact us and tell us what you've got and we'll tell you whether we do it or not. And we're prepared to cook up to your provider if um, if you prepare to introduce us to them. Brilliant. And um, Paolo, can I'm vouch for you and happy to have you on talking about that because i know how good you and Anne are and um so yeah it takes a pain point away as i frequently say to the people within my community if you do ten dollar an hour work all day long you're worth ten dollars an hour if you do hundreds you're worth a hundred an hour if you do a thousand you know and so on and so forth you know many of us are spending our time on 10 and 100 dollar an hour tasks where particularly in leadership ownership functions we should be doing the 10,000 the 100,000 dollar an hour work which is decision making culture building and strategy type things that take the businesses in new and interesting directions it's not grinding our way through a practice management software to get data out when it's just really easy to get this so uh, think about the number of hours you save in doing that but also think about the quality of the information you get the frequency of that information when it is good quality and then the big impact on the decisions you can have to me that is a no-brainer Paolo thank you sir it's always brilliant fun to chat to you it's always so good to catch up with you now miss you since you went back to the UK you see (laughs) I know I miss you guys and I miss the nice weather as well so yeah it's been great being here and and yeah it's great like what you said there about um you know about uh people valuing their, you know, if you say, if you $10 now, you worth $10 now. Actually, I'm an accountant and people think, you know, I think of everything in terms of money and I don't. I actually think of everything in terms of time. Time is my most valuable asset. And to me, if there is anything I can do to save time, time is to me the number one thing to always go for. So that's why, like, for me, dashboarding was a, was a no-brainer if it saves me time. Uh, but anything that saves you time is, uh, is where I go for. Time is the currency for me. So that's it. Good. Here, here. Wholly agree. Paolo, thank you, sir. We'll Dave, talk soon. Beautiful speaking to you again, hey? Speak soon. Bye. So that wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, it would be most appreciated if you would leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends in veterinary medicine all about us. Until next time, from all of us here at VetX International, be safe, be well, and be happy. Be happy.